So uh, thanks everybody uh, for joining us. This is uh, show number three uh, of our show one-on-one uh, -on -one with A and Z. Um, I'm A, uh, he's Z. Um, so. Maybe maybe after we've been in business together for you know a full forty years, we'll 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 change we'll change the order. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we got again this week another round of just extraordinarily good questions, and so thank you to everybody who's been sending in questions on Twitter. They're they're just they're 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 really really smart. Um, and are, are really inspiring. So as long as we keep getting uh, uh, smart questions like this, we'll, we'll keep going with the show. Um, and so we got a, a good dozen today. Uh, it'll take us about an hour, hour and a half. Um, and so let's dive straight into the deep end of the pool with the first question. So Matt Scott Crum asks, uh, what's the right way to handle slash talk slash engage with or not politics yeah. in the workplace as a CEO or leader of a company? Various tact tactics from companies like Coinbase to Google have different approaches, and all of them seem imperfect and challenging. So, Ben, I will ask you to start uh, <laughs> with this. Uh, start with the first answer. Okay, let me just um, point out because I see Margaret in the audience. Margaret, he asked me this, um, so if I get myself into the trouble and get attacked later on uh, in the media, just uh, it's all Mark's fault. And, um, and I should. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on. <laughs> Margaret has something to say. Okay, here we go. <laughs> This is a rare, for folks who don't know Margaret, this is a rare moment. Margaret, welcome to the stage. Oh, Margaret may be here just simply to monitor. Let's see. All right. <laughs> okay, well, she can cut me. Margaret, feel free to cut me off if you need to. So that is a really good question. Let me kind of, maybe I'll start with some principles and then talk a little bit about um, our approach to it at, at Andreessen Horowitz. Um, so, Look, the first thing is, since you brought up Google, you know, one of the things that Mark, you and I talk about a lot is it's super dangerous to copy anything that a company like Google does um, that has a monopoly position in a product because that, you know, if you have a product that generates tens of billions of dollars in revenue every year, that can cover all kinds of uh, mistakes that would very easily kill um, a normal company. And so unless you're Andy Jassy or Tim Cook, you probably shouldn't copy anything from Google directly just because like they're they're a different animal than 99.99% of the companies out there. Um, so then when you look about, okay, how do you run a company? Um, you know, one thing that, that I think should be an obvious statement, but I'm going to say it because it's important to keep in mind is Look, every company that's ever been built and succeeded has kind of been run as essentially a benevolent dictatorship. Um, and that's because a company is so much about kind of efficient and high quality decision making. And that's just better done at like company size scale and lifetime um, by a dictator uh, than by a democracy or a democratic process, which would be kind of much slower and messier, but, you know, has other good properties if you're talking about like government or that kind of thing. Um, and so you can't, on the first part of the question, you know, can you sidestep the issue of politics and just be silent on it? I don't think that's possible, um, or a good idea because by doing so, um, you know, as the dictator, you have to be the moral authority of the company. Like it's really, really important because if you see, and these issues of politics tend to be moral issues, um, if you see that morality 
to kind of the crowd, uh, then you actually cede all your decision-making to the crowd. And then all of a sudden you're no longer, you know, you've lost all your decision-making efficiency entirely and you've lost your competitiveness and so forth. And like I said, can, if, look, can, if you've got a, yes, go can, ahead. Can I ask just, you just said, just to cover what you just said. So what, yeah. why does, why does doing it once lead to doing it for everything or some, or some version of that? Like how, how does that happen? Like what, well, why not, why not, why not make exceptions? Well, because it, it, it's the nature of being authoritative. Um, you know, look, if you're so, I'm trying to think of uh, a relatively benign one, but like if you say, okay, um, you, you know, there's, uh, let's say like free lunch became a, a moral issue. And you said, okay, I don't know about free lunches. Like, let's just, you guys tell me, do you want free lunch or not? And everybody goes, oh, da, 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 and it's a discussion. They vote on it. You, you've now kind of set the expectation that, that anything, look, we need free, we need nutrition. Like, how could you have employees don't, that don't have nutrition? Like, once you get into like that kind of, it's wide open, what's moral or not in my organization, um, that really is a one-way door. Because then you've kind of transferred responsibility onto everybody. And now everybody feels that responsibility and wants that say. Um, and I, you know, it's not really possible to go, okay, we're just going to leave it up to everybody for this issue. And then we're going to go back to the way it was for every kind of subsequent moral issue. Uh, and then, you know, as you know, Mark, any issue can become a moral issue, like free lunch, um, you know, once you open that door. So this is why there, there's got to be some kind of, um, you know, the company's moral compass lies with the leader. And if you abdicate that duty, uh, you put yourself in a very dangerous position. Now, you know, it's not to say that you can't ever reverse it or so forth, but it's a very bad experiment to try. Um, so that's kind of like at a top level, you have to, whatever you want, um, in your company, you've like, you have to know what you want uh, on these issues. You cannot just leave them open for everybody else to decide because you'll lose your moral compass as an organization and, and you won't stand for anything. And, and that's not a good option. So then, so the main thing I would say is you have to have an opinion on this. Um, and what your opinion is, uh, you know, can come from where you're coming from. Now, I'll give an example of that, which is kind of what we did at the firm, uh, which, um, look, comes from, I'm not saying it's correct for everybody. I'm not saying it's the be all and end all of how you would handle uh, politics in an organization, but like it's what we do and um, it works for us. So our position comes from, our inclusion cultural value, which is, um, you know, at a high level, it's, it's more involved. You can look on the website, but it's, we are all different. We recognize that and we win. Um, and what we mean by that value is like, we know we come from different backgrounds, different cultures, different countries, different races, different genders, different everything, different political views. Um, and we recognize those differences and we value the things, um, we value the differences. Uh, and that is how we win. Um, and you know, one of the examples I give is not different than a football team, where like you have fast guys and you've got big guys, and 
you know, you have to value the difference between those if you're going to win. You can't just have everybody be like who you are. Uh, and so then, okay, how does this play into politics? Well, political differences, and just so you know my background, um, look, I come from a very political family. My grandfather was a communist. He was fired during the McCarthy era from his job as a high school teacher for being a communist. My father is like, for those of you who know who he is, um, is extremely, uh, his whole career is politics. He's very kind of politically active uh, in extreme ways on both sides of the spectrum from time to time or from years to years. Uh, so like, this is what I grew up with. I understand it very well. Um, and to show you just like how politics can be, how divisive politics can be, uh, in my family tree, the most popular person uh, was my great uncle Harold, and who I never met. Um, he's the most popular person, great musician, famous guy. Uh, and you know, about five years ago, I looked him up on the internet, and I realized I was 14 years old when he passed away, but I never met him. And that, you know, it didn't make any sense to me. So I called my father. I was like, Dad, why did I never meet Uncle Harold? And he said, well, because your Uncle Harold, uh, you, you, Grandma didn't speak to him for 20 years. And I said, well, why didn't Grandma speak to him for 20 years? And he said, well, because he was a Trotskyite. And I said, well, what was Grandma? And he said, she was a Stalinist. So my Uncle Harold and my grandmother were two very, very slightly different kinds of communists that probably most of you in the audience don't even know the difference <laughs> between whether you follow Trotsky or whether you followed Stalin. Um, but that difference caused them not to speak for 20 years. So you think about that smaller thing, um, creating that bigger rift, that's kind of the nature of politics, that you don't value differences you know, when you're really in the political arena. Um, and so for our firm, uh, you know, the way we look at it is look, we hire people who adhere to our values, you know, and our values mean like you really have respect for each other. You believe in people from different backgrounds. You want life to be fair, all these things. But how you get there as a country of 350 million people, what is the right policy? What is the right border policy? What is the right minimum wage policy? What is the right anything policy? What is the right entitlement policy? Is very debatable. Um, and the example that I always use in the company is, look, I do a reorg of 200 people and I don't know all the consequences. So for anybody to sit here and tell me they morally know what's gonna happen if you set a policy for 350 million people against a value that you have, you're lying. You don't understand systems, you don't understand the country. So like, that's not an argument that I'm gonna accept. And so what we say inside the company is, look, we believe in each other's intent. Um, and we may come from different political perspectives on it, but if you attack somebody inside the company on Slack or you try and intimidate them or you try and force them to your way of thinking, um, that's a violation of the culture. And that's my moral position based on my background and Mark's moral position based on his background. Um, and, you know, that works for us. But I think the important thing about it is we have a point of view. Um, and look, anybody in the company, of course, can live whatever political life they want outside the company, but when they come inside, they have to be respectful of other people's backgrounds and cultures and political points of view. 
So when when we talk to when we talk to founders about this, the, I think the, the question that comes back the most often, and you kind of alluded to it in your answer, uh, but I'll, I'll just mm-hmm. I'll kind of put a point on it because I think it's it's the one that is on it will, will be on people's minds is, um, it's sort of it's fine to say we don't do politics like that's the easy um, thing, but in the moment, like and especially when something extremely vivid and dramatic is happening in the world that really has grabbed you know people. Well, the good thing is there hasn't been any of that lately. <laughs> yes, it's been a calm and, and placid time. Um, but when something like, you know, really big happens on the national stage, right, where it really like, you know, basically grabs a lot of people uh, emotionally yeah. and, be- and, yeah. and people get very energized. And there have been, you know, a whole bunch of those. And by, and by the way, there have been a whole bunch of those in the last five years on, on, yeah. on, on both sides of the aisle. So not, not, to, not, to, not to pick on anyone. But like when that happens, the argument you, you get back from the employees, if you're the CEO with this position is, no, no. This issue is a political. This issue is moral, and, and, and that's different. And so may, yeah. maybe you could talk a little bit about like what, how, how do you either like, yeah, how do you basically separate these concepts of political or moral, or, or, or conversely, like how do you, how do you sort of, you know, are they, are they the same? Or are they different? Well, so you know they're intertwined, and I think that like there's there's a couple of things. One is there's okay um, the moral side of it, which is, um, you know, should there be justice or mercy? Should there be, you know, um, uh, fairness and and these kinds of things, I think are easier to get agreement on if you can isolate them from the policy to achieve that goal. Um, And so I do think it's important to like one, have an opinion on, um, you know, what is moral separate from what is the right policy? Because uh, usually the differences come on what is the right action to take given what's moral. Um, and, and this is true, like even in things that, you know, I would say appear fairly obvious. And I don't want to like, I think it's a little, I, I want to weigh deeply into a specific issue, but um, you you have to have that separation. And then you've got to have, uh, I think it's really important for an organization to know where you stand morally. Um, And then I think it's okay to not have a prescription, particularly if it's for like, you know, if you just come up and say, okay, Racism is morally wrong, which has been a big issue. Like there's, well, like that's like a hundred percent something that you could say. I mean, I like it. Like there are people who feel the other way, but I think that's a relatively, uh, at least in our field, that's a relatively small kind of part of the population. And you get into, okay, what do you do about it? That's a much more complicated issue. And I think it's, you know, as a leader, it's good to talk about the complexity. I don't think it's a good idea to, or, you know, before you kind of prescribe the solution to something that we've been struggling with, obviously for kind of the entire history of the country, um, you know, that's a very, you have to acknowledge the difficulty of that problem and that, you know, many of the solutions that people are insisting on now have been tried and didn't work. Uh, and, and you just have to kind of create an awareness as a leader to like, okay, how hard is this problem? What can we do? Um, what am I going to do? Um, you know, 
if you need a recommendation, I could advise you on something, but I'm not going to like pretend that I know the answer to something that like we as a people have not come up with an answer for like that. It would be kind of, I think the right way to approach these kinds of things to separate the, okay, what is right from, you know, what is it that we should do? And I think like people jump right to what we should do. And like, if you've got people in your organization that have different views and you're guessing, which you almost certainly are, then, you know, you're going to have to deal with that consequence. And it may be that you kind of isolate certain people um, or, you know, certain people don't want to work for you or, or what have you, but like, that's, that's the way it's going to go with politics. Yeah. And then I would add, I would, you know, you, you sort of made the, made the argument that like, there's usually, like usually people agree on the morality and then they don't agree on the policies. I, I actually think I, I would add, I actually think people don't agree, don't agree on the morality, maybe more often than it seems. So um, give me an example. Yeah. So fairness. Uh, you, you mentioned mm -hmm. this, but I'll just expand on it. So fairness. So it turns out there's actually two totally different definitions of the morality of fairness, mm -hmm. right? Um, one is uh, fairness, which is basically everybody gets an equal share. Like mm -hmm. you and I are like splitting a cake and, you know, we're going to have equally sized pieces or any version of that. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other is um, output uh, uh, relative to input. Um, mm -hmm. So I work twice as hard as you do. I get paid twice as much. Right, 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 right. So kind of... Um communism versus capitalism are these kinds of issues, yeah. right? Right, right. Yeah. And, it's, and, and, and I would even say maybe communism is actually too harsh because actually there's, there's a situational component to it, right? Which is like, if you're with your family, right? Mm -hmm. um, or if oh, you're the with, scale. Like, right, right, right. right. The, the scale issue that uh, Nassim Taleb talks about, right? In my family, I'm a communist. Of course I am. Right. And uh, at the at the city level, <laughs> what does he say? At the city level, I'm a Democrat. At the state level, I'm a Republican. And at the national level, I'm a Libertarian. This is Nassim Taleb, not me talking, by the way, right. <laughs> before everybody attacks me. Uh, but, it, you know, it, it is, it's a really, I think, insightful point about systems and scale. Right. Uh, but, but see, I think that what you're getting to there is really an implementation question. Um, mm -hmm in that like which implementation will really work? Because I think that look, a lot of people, if they thought it was possible at a national level um, to have abundance and have it be completely equal outcomes, then they might be for that. I think a lot of people who are against that know from at least a long history that when you attempt to achieve that, everybody dies. I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't care if it was Pol Pot, Stalin, um, Hitler, uh, Mao, like they just ended up killing a lot of their own people because, you know, as you know, at scale, when you don't have that familiar familial relationship um, and you remove incentives, at least the history of it has not been good. So I think that, you know, sometimes it's a, you know, and, and this is where I think it gets dangerous in a company when you right. talk about differences of understanding um, or differences of like, opinions on how the system is going to actually function as opposed to look i would like everybody to have an equally good life and us to you know continue to make amazing technological process and support a higher and higher population on the world and 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 um unfortunately i think that you know now that i'm an old man i know that like there are very clear at least trade-offs amongst those things so i'm going to come to one conclusion on the kind of policy that's the most fair 
whereas somebody else is going to who look may have a different point of view and think, oh no, you know all those countries uh, did it wrong, and if it was implemented correctly, it would work. Might have a different view on that, and I think that right. like that's the difference that's very destructive when you're trying to bring kind of different kinds of people together in an organization. And that's why, you know, like that's why at our firm, we strive not to get into that. Um, and we just look for our business and for the work that we're doing, <laughs> uh, you know, what's important is that we care about each other. And then we care about the companies that we work with and that we, you know, try and make everybody better. Um, and like whether or not you can actually design a, like a high scale system that separates input from output completely and works is just not a debate that, you, well, it's not a debate that somebody should feel like they're not welcome at our office because they're on one side or another. Like that, that's, you know, basically where I come out on it. Right. And then you, you made the point, but I just want to maybe end on this on this topic because I think it's really important, which is like you, you, you just described our approach. Um, yes. But I, I think what you said was like it, it is a it, in our view, it is a totally valid, totally valid concept that each CEO needs to make these decisions for their own company and, and, and sort of design the right way of thinking about this. You know, the, the, how to resolve this question sort of in, a, in a way that fits for each company. Absolutely. Look, Todd at Okta, um, Todd McKinnon, who's a, you know one of my favorite CEOs. Has a has a very different approach um, than we do, but one thing he that is the same. The one thing that is the same is like he is the moral authority there, um, and you know, and like he works with his co-founder Freddie on it, and you know, Freddie is amazing, and you know, and that's not to say that all the ideas come from Todd; they come from his whole team and so on. But at the end of the day, he makes a decision on what they're going to do, um, and I think the the most dangerous thing is to, you know, kind of abdicate that authority and put it back on everybody who works there that that's a dangerous thing to do so that that'd be my main point um for you know whatever you want to do with your organization just make sure that you have a moral point of view yep. and then uh, Mar margaret um uh, you were nice enough to come join us would you like to weigh in before we go to the next topic oh hey margaret we can't hear you I think we've decoded the problem. She's definitely there. She came off mute, but I think, oh, there we go. Hey, hey Margaret. There, can you hear me? Yes. yes. It's, it's yeah. an AirPods thing. Sorry about that. AirPods sure. are gone. So one thing that's worth pointing out, having been a CEO and an employee is, I think it's worth pointing out that I think what most people, employees are not paying attention to is that they may not want their leadership to decide all their politics for them. Right. Because that can go Absolutely. Yeah. sideways. Right. Um, Great because, point. I mean, the, the three of us may not agree on everything. We agree on a lot of stuff, but definitely, you know, policy by policy and given things are divided, there's probably large disagreement. So please don't decide much it for me. Thank you. And then number two is I think if you want to say like, OK, there are no politics at our office, which is what we've done, is you do have to compensate for giving people a huge inspiration of a goal that they can get behind to compensate for sort of the lack of religion or whatnot at the company. And I think that sometimes gets overlooked and then they, they become conflated. It's like, Oh, here's, here's the pol politics religion and it subsumes the company agenda or here's the only agenda. And we don't explicitly say like what we don't and what we do and don't engage in. 
that will be my my practical point of view. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's that's super helpful and clarifying. And I 100% agree. Mark, you're on mute. I don't know if you're talking. Oh, I, I was being incredibly compelling. Um, <laughs> I, I gave the secret answer, but nobody heard it. Um, so uh, we are right on track schedule-wise. We're a third of the way finished, even though we're only done with one of the 12 questions. Mm -hmm. So we, we will go to the next topic. Um, well, that was the, the hardest topic, question. Yes, that was the hardest. We won't put the hardest one up front. So the, and the, the, the next topic is, is, is uh, it's not directly related, but it's also, I would say, in the deep end of the pool. Um, so Emmanuel uh, Gussart asks, last week you spoke briefly about the importance for leaders to learn how to identify talent they, they don't have, uh, mm -hmm. that the leaders don't have in others, and avoid hiring only people who have a similar background and mindset to the leaders. Um, what do you recommend to develop this skill? Yeah, so that's a great question. And, you know, I think it's, uh, it's different at kind of different levels of talent. So, um, you know, when you're, let's talk about like the, the most basic thing, which is, okay, hiring executives. Um, and like we've had, you know, sometimes if you're an engineer and you're the CEO, you want to hire an engineer for everybody, you know, like, oh, here's an engineer that failed our engineering exam. Let's put a clean shirt on him and make him an SE or something like that, you know, and that's a, that tends not to work, right? Uh so, you know, the first thing you have to do is learn how to hire, like, who's going to be great at the jobs that you haven't done and that you don't know about, like, say, the sales leader. Uh, because, you know, like, that's, you haven't been a salesperson in your career. You don't know uh, what talent that is or, you know, what drives it. It's, you're not from there. So a really good way to start is to basically spend time with, four or five, you know, heads of sales who you've heard are really good and just basically ask them, well, what is, what does it mean to run a sales organization? What are the challenges? Uh, what's the difference between a good sales leader and a great sales leader? How do you test that in an interview? You know, when you ask them that question, what do you want the answer to be? What's a bad answer? What's a good answer? What do they have to show you that they know how to do? that kind of thing. So you can start to kind of build a model of what that talent looks like and how somebody who actually knows what it is would evaluate it. Um, and then, you know, when you get into questions and then questions of kind of cultural diversity end up being very similar, quite frankly. Um, and I, I think that, you know, people don't build, people don't even build the skill to <laughs> test for executives, but when you, when you talk about um, on the cultural side, well, like, okay, if you're from, you know, uh, Vietnam, like, what is it in your culture? What's in your background? Like, what would you look for in hiring somebody versus, you know, if you're African American versus if you're Jewish, like, what do, what is your profile? Because everybody profiles to themselves. Um, like what do you just kind of naturally look for and ask for in an interview question ends up being good. And one of the things that we do at the firm is we have this thing called the criteria committee, which is we just have people from every different background that we have look at our job recs and say, well, if I was hiring for that, this is what I'd be looking for. And it it's amazing how different it is from 
whoever the hiring manager was. Now the hiring manager doesn't have to take any of those things, but they have to know what that talent is. And then if they do want that talent, then they can go to the person who advocated for it and say, okay, how would you test for that? How do you know if somebody is great at building relationships? Because that's not something I'm great at. You know, how do I, how do I figure that out, you know, in my reference checking and my interviewing and looking at their background and so forth? And you can kind of start to build up your skill set that way. Good. I have nothing to add. I thought that was great. Um, I will um, now ask question number three, which I will give the first answer to. So Ben, feel <laughs> Thank free you. to have a feel free to have a sip of cognac. Um, uh, Omar Ismail asks, um, "How do you build a prepared mind?" So I think this is in in reference. Uh, it, it, this may be in reference to just uh, discussions that we've had in the past, or interviews mm -hmm. in the past, where we talk about the need for for. Uh, the need, the need for prepared minds. So the need for prepared minds certainly as a as a venture capitalist, but you know, in in, in, a, in certainly a lot, a lot of areas of tech and then the rest of life. Um, and of course, I, if if I'm not mistaken, I think this is originally like a Zen concept, right? Which is um, uh, to be able to um, yeah, yeah, it is. That's right. That's right. But you know, then there's some balance, right? Because you want to have yeah. like an open mind, um, but you want to you want to be prepared to accept new information and maybe pre you know preparation that being prepared might it might involve knowing things ahead of time. So not having a completely open mind. Um, so I guess I would just, I would give just a couple of things on this. And I, I guess I would say that this, this, okay, so I should back up. This is something I've thought a lot about because what I've noticed generally in life is that it is that basically that people kind of change as follows, which is if you are lucky enough to watch little kids play, um, you know, which for, for, you know, little kids is basically everything they do if they're given a chance. Um, if you sort of watch little kids, and I mean like, you know, three, you know, two, three, four, five, six, um, they're basically running just this, they have basically insatiable curiosity. Um, I mean, the entire world is this just like absolutely spectacular, you know, kaleidoscopic, like, you know, exploding sensory adventure, um, that they're on. And it's just like every, they're experiencing everything for the first time. And it's all just so incredibly interesting. And then they basically run the way I think about it is they basically run just like an unending series of like experiments in applied physics. Um, you know, many of which result, you know, are of the form of like, boy, I wonder what happens if I drop this, right? Or I wonder what happens if I throw this, <laughs> or I wonder what happens if I scribble on this. Um, and so it's just like, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of these experiments. And it, and it just, it, it flows out of this sort of very natural curiosity engagement with the world. And then most people, not everybody, but most people, and I'd include myself in this, you know, mostly what happens is you kind of learn your way out of that. Um, and I, and I use those words kind of very deliberately, which is kind of like you run the thousands of experiments and then you, you know, you get older and you start learning other kinds of experiments about how to like, you know, relate with other people or like, you know, what, what kinds of jobs to have or like what to, what to spend your time on. Um, and you start to like, learn like a lot of negative lessons, right? You start to learn, you know, a lot of things that don't work. Right. And, and, you know, and some of this is very useful. Like we, you know, I do not touch the hot stove. I do not, you know, stick the fork into the power outlet. Right. Um, I do not slam the door on my hand. Um, you know, so th those are like good, good things to learn your way out of. But like, if you're not really, really careful, you you, you learn your way out of that entire sense of adventure. Um, and and I think that you know, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a normal part of aging, but I think it's it's quite common. And I I you know I'm I'm certainly just as subject to it as anybody. And so it's just it, it's a very natural thing. Um, and so one is I, I I think, or at least my approach is, you, you therefore have to correct for that by having an ex basically forcing yourself to basically override your instincts uh, at the moment of contact with something new. Um, and so it's a great example. I mean, we're all here on Clubhouse today, but like, you know, you can, you can spend any, any amount of time on Twitter, you search on Clubhouse and you'll see people who are like, I've heard of this new Clubhouse thing. And I think it sounds stupid. Or I think it sounds like, you know, it must just all be a bunch of terrible people, or it must just be like, I, you know, I can't be bothered. 
And it's like, you know, look, there was like, there's like a new idea in the world. And like, at least some people think it's a good idea. And it's, it's bouncing off of other people. Like they're made out of Teflon. Um, yeah. And so it's like, okay, like what are they doing to themselves that they're cutting themselves off from a new idea? And maybe, maybe like a better way to live would basically be able to say like, look, when it, when a new thing is like coming up or like puts itself in my face or like makes, you know, makes, makes itself, you know, kind of, uh, you know, kind of puts itself in my orbit. You know, maybe I should I should like default of like, oh, you know, that that's interesting, <laughs> like interesting, like and, and then, of course, that leads to kind of the, the, the core kind of question of venture capital, which which is less like, is this going to work? And it's more the question of like, if this does work, like what 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 happens next? Um, and so it's sort of this default no to default. Yes, uh, kind of setting. And so I think that's the that's the sort of emotional part of this um, or it's kind of the, the, the mm -hmm. sort of framework part. And then, right. and then Skepti would, skeptical oh, venture capitalists are the worst. Yeah. So this is actually a super interesting, which yes, is, this is, which a, is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and by the way, like I, I should also say for people, you know, put this way, there are a lot of skeptical venture capitalists out there. And I will say like, I have been that from time to time and it's something that I, I try not to be, but like, let me actually describe actually this really good point then. So why are there skeptical venture capitalists? Well, some people are just like ornery and skeptical and they're probably not going to succeed in the job, but you actually run into very successful venture capitalists who, who are skeptical. And that's like a harder thing to explain because it's like, how do they ever succeed if they're so skeptical, if they're so like, yeah. you know, basically averse to new ideas. And, and actually what happens when you're a venture capitalist is very interesting. It's like the, the sort of advanced, you know, black diamond version of this problem, which basically is like, if you're at like a, a you know, a good venture capital firm, you're, you're seeing like, you know, a thousand inbound pitches a year. Right. Um, and, and like, you're seeing like a thousand inbound pitches a year, like every year. Um, right. And so you're just seeing this like ocean of new ideas and bright eyed founders coming at you. And then, by the way, if you like track, you know, performance over time, you know, most of them fail. Right. And so it's really easy to sort of develop this kind of default position that like whatever I'm seeing, number one is like, I don't need to take this one that seriously because there's 999 others. Right. So I've got plenty of other shots of gold that I can take. Right. No, no one deal matters that much. And then and then the other is like, well, you know, generally speaking, like, these things all fail. <laughs> you know, most of my, you know, each VC like has had a whole bunch of failures. Right. And they're, you know, even the most successful VCs have a failure rate of at least 50 percent in their own personal portfolios. And so it's like, OK, most things are going to fail. So this will probably fail. And so you end up in this position, if you're not careful, where you can spend all day basically seeing new ideas and being skeptical about them. Um, yeah. the, the, the worst form of this I ever heard, I won't name the firm, but a partner at one of the, one of the firms, let's just say a firm of the, of the prior generation told me, he's like, oh, venture capital is like, well, here's what venture capital is like. Um, it's like sitting at the sushi buffet um, for lunch and the little boats um, are floating by. Um, and they've all got some interesting looking sushi on it. And you just like sit and watch the boats float by until you see a piece of sushi you like, and then you reach in and you pluck the piece of sushi. And if you don't see anything you like, you just sit there for another half hour and watch the boats go by. And, and I remember thinking like, that's like the most cynical, condescending, you know, patronizing, arrogant. <laughs> yeah, as an entrepreneur that hurt my feelings. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm not a, number one, I'm not a piece of sushi. Number two, I'm not on a little boat, you know? And then by the way, <laughs> three fuck you um so um yeah so like whatever that attitude is like i think i think it's the opposite it's the opposite of that um yeah. so no no sushi, no sushi boats and then the other thing i'd nominate in the prepared mind topic this is also something i think a lot about which is i and, and this this actually what i'm about to give you is actually a meta example of what i'm about to say which is I, I read a biography i read the biography of johnny carson years ago 
you know, because I was always curious of like, how, you know, basically this, this this guy from Midwest, you know, kind of builds this incredible like late night television empire for like dominates the field for like 40 years. Right. right. Like, how did that happen? And it's, it's actually a very interesting story in part because he's like a very interesting guy. Like, as an example, he was a complete introvert. Um, and so like he hated going to parties and like generally refused, you know, <laughs> or, or, that... or like watching himself on TV was, was right. He would throw up when he saw himself. on right. TV. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, right. Exactly. He never watched the yeah. show, but like on the show, you know, he's like the most charming person in the world. Um, and so part of the, the interviewer, the biographer asked him, you know, it's going through kind of all the techniques and everything. And he said, I forget exactly. It was something along the lines of like, when you're in, when you're in my job, which is like late night talk show host. He's like, basically, like, at some point, you're going to use every single thing you ever read or encounter, right? So, like, you're going to be talking to all these different guests, and it's going to come up, and you're going to, like, you're going to be talking to somebody who, like, I don't know, shot a Western movie and is, like, wearing a belt that they got on the movie set. And you're going to think back to, like, some article you read in, like, you know, Smithsonian Magazine 15 years earlier about, like, custom leather work on the, you know, during, the, during you know, the, the frontier. And you're going to, like, pluck that out of your memory and apply it. Right. And, and all of a sudden it's going to be, you know, yeah, I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm using even that. Um, and of course, th this is like a meta example of that because I'm using like literally a story from the Johnny Carson biography, which I don't know if I remembered a lot more from, but like I remembered that <laughs> thing. Yeah. Right. And I like I like use that every day. Um, yeah, no, that, so, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, that, 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 that is the, that's amazingly good point, because that is, you know, what you're getting at is the preparation is you're preparing yourself to actually be able to absorb new information is so much of it. Yeah, exactly. And then basically yeah. it turns out like, and, you know, and this is super true in our job, but like, it turns out like, you know, we see startups from every different, you know, in every different conceivable field. And so it's like everything I've ever read about everything from like how the defense department operates to like how medicine works to, you know, or it's, it's even like, you know, and for, for what we do, it's even like, you know, every, if I have to like go to the hospital, go to medical appointment for something now, I'm like watching every part of the process because I'm trying to figure out like, okay, you know, three years from now, we're going to see some biotech startup that's going to have some new device, right? Or we're going to see some new way to do telemedicine or something, and I'm going to be able to map it into this experience that I've had. So, so it's basically just like, it, so in other words, like basically what you say is like, it's actually hard. I think it's hard to actually learn irrelevant things, right? It basically just says like having a very broad curiosity can be a great thing because you basically end up using a lot of the things that you, that you learn, even though you don't expect it. And of course, we have like, we and probably reporters have the, version, have the two jobs that are, are kind of the most prone to this. But look, I, I think this kind of applies to a lot of other stuff too. Cause I think like if you're running a company or if you're going to run a company at some point, right. Um, you know, you're going to run into issues across basically every field of human activity, right. You know, from, you know, politics to law, to finance, to sales, to marketing and HR and policy and like all these issues. Um, so you're going to like be pulling stuff out of your memory all the time. You're going to be talking to customers from every different industry. Right. And you're, and you're, so if you, if you kind of know something about like every industry or every field, you'll always have something to talk to some customer about. You're talking to some, you know, industrial customer in the Midwest. And it's like, well, I actually know something about like, you know, I don't know, commercial shipping because I once read, you know, Fred Smith's biography and now we have something to talk about. Um, and so it's like, it, it, I think it's, I think it's hard in life to have too broad of a curiosity. Um, and um, I think that, 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 that at least for me has really helped uh, on the prepared mind front. Yeah, no, that's a, I don't have too much to add other than I, I would say, you know, as you get into kind of getting into a domain or something like that, and you say, okay, can I make an investment in this area? And I, I always think the test for it is, do I know enough about it? So like, I feel like I can have an original idea or at least have a controversial opinion that I can defend um, with somebody who knows what they're talking about. Because if you don't, then you're, then it's pretty random whether you're actually 
uh, investing in, in the right thing or not. And then um, actually um, the same person, uh, Omar Ismail has a second question, which is just somewhat related, um, which is how do you think about the quote, why now question? And uh, maybe just expand on that, which is, this is sort of like a standard VC question and startup question, by the way, which is basically, you know, like, you know, we, we have this all the time. Entrepreneur comes in and pitches us and they're like, I'm building whatever, you know, the <laughs> particle accelerator that'll, you know, teleport us to Mars or whatever it is. And it's like, okay, that's great. But like, why now? Which is to say, why didn't this happen five years ago? Right. And, and are there actually really good reasons this didn't happen five years ago that kind of indicate that it won't work now? Right. Or conversely, like, why not five years from now? Like, how do we know that now is the time and it's not going to take more time for, you know, for whatever the market to develop or for the technology to work or whatever. So, um, so basically, what, why is now the right time? And of course, people who are thinking about joining tech startups would, would, would obviously have the same question. So Ben, ben I'd be curious what your view on that, on that is. Yeah, well, it, it's a very interesting question. And by, by the way, if you're an entrepreneur, there, there's not really necessarily a right answer, but the, the, the timing mistake that most startups make is not that they're too late, it's that they're too early. Um, and, the, you know, which leads the venture capitalist to ask, why now? Um, and, you know, basically, we rarely see ideas that aren't good ideas. We mostly see ideas that are mistimed. Um, and mis being like being at the wrong time is, you know, as an entrepreneur is every bit as bad as having the wrong idea. Uh, so, so, so it is a real thing. Um, but often it's like, okay, what in the world has changed that's, you know, makes this now. And, you know, actually lately, <laughs> um, what, why now has been for a lot of these things, COVID, um, just because it's you all of a sudden have a captive audience or something that you have before. So there, there can be things like that. There can be things like, well, um, you know, technologically, well, audio apps before AirPods, you know, probably wouldn't have worked as well. Um, so there's, you know, other technologies that then go ahead and enable you to build something against that. So I think Clubhouse, you know, well, technologically, you could have built it a while ago. I think, you, you know, there are certain prerequisites that make it much bigger and, and much more enjoyable now than it would have been uh, and, and these kinds of things. Yeah, one of the reasons, by the way, we've 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 said this before, but it's probably worth emphasizing. So you you mentioned something about how we we rarely see bad ideas. Um, I would say for people who haven't heard us talk about this before, that might be a jarring statement because it's like, of course, you see, you, you must see bad ideas all day long because like all these things don't work. Um, you know, there's so many things that don't work, and like, how do you know when you're seeing something and then it doesn't work? How like isn't isn't that either proof that it's a bad idea or a pretty a strong sign that it was a bad idea? And the way that we think about this is to try to basically do what's what, what, what sort of in finance you call the back test, um, which is basically you know, basically look at what happened in the past and, and and basically look at look at the opportunity set that existed in the past and then basically look at the outcomes um, that happened and, and basically try to like teleport yourself and your process into the past to kind of understand like how well you understand to try to understand how well you understand what your process will lead to like when confronted with a set of opportunities and one of the things when you do that for example in, in our business is you go back and you look at the dot com bubble. Right, which was sort of, um, you know, it's kind of circa, you know, it, broadly, let's say, it was circa 1995 to 2000. Although I would argue the true bubble was only there at the very end. But um, uh, what it, what you know became known historically as the dot com bubble, and, and you know there was the crash of 2000, and lots of tech startups went out of business. And and uh, you know the 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 coverage of the crash 
you know, after 2000, you know, the news coverage and the analysis and so forth was just well, like and in very... popular culture and movies everywhere. It was just like only the biggest morons in the world would build a dot com. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. And, and and in fact, and then you had these like you had these very specific object lessons, of which you know two two big ones uh, jump out. Um, one is uh, you know uh, was Webvan at the time, which was was online grocery delivery, Instacart, um, and <laughs> which which right, which today is Instacart, and then the other was um, what was it the um, the pet uh, pet pets dot com pets pets dot com yeah, yeah, pets yeah. com with the famous with the famous sock puppet. Um, yeah, there was a whole like hilarious uh, expose on that one that was just. Very entertaining. Um, yeah, and these are companies for those of you who are too young to remember. Like, if you if you Google these companies, like these are companies that were like gigantically present in like popular culture uh, in like you know 1998, 1999, and then just like catastrophically wiped out in like between 2001 and 2003, and generated like huge exposés after the fact about base it basic basically about like how stupid the ideas were was 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 like like obviously everybody should have known that you can't do like grocery delivery online. That model just simply doesn't work. Yeah, also, pets don't have credit cards. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. Or, or even just like literally for pets.com is like literally like it doesn't make any sense to like deliver like a 50 pound bag of dog food. Like, you know, that could never work as a business. Um, and and so like that just got hammered home so so profoundly. And then as, as, as Ben alluded to, like today you have Instacart. Um, and then, you know, for even for like uh, pets.com, you, you have this company, Chewy, um, oh, which yeah. I, I think Amazon bought. Uh, oh, yeah. The pets market is amazing. I mean, they, there's not just like pets.com. There's pet vacations and pet walking and pet grooming like every imaginable pet product is a success right now yep turns out people people turns out yeah. people love their pets um, and they have a lot of them so so it's like basically it's like if you actually go back and you actually look at the range of ideas you know kind of between 1995 and 2000 that failed between 2001 and 2004 like in almost every case there is a huge success that followed you know basically in the in the in the in the decade plus that followed um, and so, and, and so basically like our conclusion from that is like, okay, like, like for example, for number one, it would just be like, look, the thing to do is just like, just assume the ideas are right. And basically if you're going to worry about any, any, if you're going to spend any time worrying, you know, worry about the specific implementation details. But the other hugely important thing was like, don't have scar tissue. Like don't conclude that because WebVan didn't work, right. That, that therefore the online food delivery can't work. And so therefore Instacart won't work. Right, like that 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 chain of logic is actually wrong. The, the idea was good, the, the the timing was bad. So, um, anyway, so that's that's why we say, and then why the question is such a good question is it, it it almost certainly, at least in 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 Silicon Valley, it's almost certainly not a bad idea. Like whatever it is, uh, if it doesn't work, it's almost always timing. And then, as a consequence of that, it, it basically means like you you can actually predict a lot of the future successes. Like you can predict like what they're gonna be. Um, and basically, what you it's actually quite easy. You just make a list of all the things people are excited about today. Um, and then you just keep things on that list until somebody actually like built a really big company doing that thing. Um, or, you know, in the case of, uh, you know, in the case of uh, certain things like Craigslist, you can literally just take every single icon on the home screen and it will become a giant company. Um, so that, you know, the, 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 the great ideas are like literally all around us. Like they're, they're, you know, most of them actually already exist kind of in the zeitgeist. No, no, that, that, that's exactly right. Like, and the other thing is, um, you know, entrepreneurs, uh, bet their lives on these ideas. They're, they're, they generally thought about them before they did that. Yep. Um, and that leads us to, let's see, that actually leads us to a related question, a more specific question building on that one. So uh, Rebecca Hudson asks, how do you predict um, the market size of a product that doesn't have a market yet? <laughs> so it's funny because at our firm, uh, one of the things that we always say is, 
predicting the market size is the thing we get wrong the most often. <laughs> um, we underestimate the size of it. Um, and it's not just uh, a market that doesn't exist, that that actually gets created by the product. By the way, um, that was Netscape. And that was yep. <laughs> Netscape, LoudCloud, Opsware. Mm -hmm. There was no market for any of those when we, when we started those. So we're, we're very familiar with the idea. Um, but you know, even more so, products that have markets, known markets. I mean, I, I remember, you know, when uh, Lyft and Uber came around, um, people were going, "Well, what's the size of the limo market? What's the size of the taxi market?" Um, but those were way, way, way underestimated uh, versus, you know, the market that actually got created with a dramatically better product. So, it's a very uh, complicated thing. So. I, I think we really much more look at the quality of the founder and the quality of the idea itself and how big a breakthrough it is. And if it's a big enough breakthrough to change consumer behavior um, and it's a genius entrepreneur, then you know we make that bet and not worry about exactly how big it is. But uh, what do you think, Mark? Yeah, I always think about it as basically it's like this is one of those pick your poison things um, where it's like basically you can you can divide startups on this axis of basically a, you know a startup basically building a better product for an existing market um, or a startup building a product for a market that doesn't exist yet and it's it's like a pick your poison thing right because like the good news right with with you, you probably do a two by two by two uh, matrix on this you know if the market already exists then the good news is like you don't doubt the market size right you, you may underestimate it right you, you it may be too small it may grow a lot but like at least you know there's a market there and so yeah. you know when like you know deck or sun or later you know other companies went into mm -hmm. you know sgi or then later intel microsoft went into the computer market like at least you know they did know there was a market for computers because ibm had proven it um when ibm went in the computer market it was much more of an open question because there was no computer market um at the time and there, there were there were actually a lot of skeptics about that too um so um so so that's kind of the good news bad news well that's the good news on that one the bad news on those is you just you have incumbent competitors right and like you know lots of startups succeed against incumbent competitors but like you have to you have to take them seriously and they they, they, they can often present a real challenge um the good news with uh, companies going into markets that don't exist yet is no incumbent competitors by definition, right? Um, and so, like, if you get your thing figured out and get product market fit, you can just go, right, without somebody coming in and trying to stomp on you. Um, but the problem is, like, that, you know, who knows whether that market exists, right? And and one of the things you find, like, with startups is, like, market research for a product that doesn't exist yet, right? Like, like <laughs> yeah, that's a waste of time. Yeah. So Steve Jobs famously, you know, Steve Jobs famously said, no, nobody asked for a Macintosh. Like, you know, you just like, you know, it's, it, you have to like picture yourself going in and doing a focus group, right? In like, you know, whatever, 1983 or something, where everybody's using like IBM PCs, and you have to say, well, what if we had this computer that like smiled when you 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 know booted it up, and it had this ability, you know, this, this paint thing and this Windows thing, and like nobody had seen or heard of such a thing. And by the way, what if it costs like three three times as much? Um, you know, and so, and what if it does, you know, what if it doesn't have any apps when it first launches, um, right? And like, what set of questions are you actually going to ask that are going to get back an answer? And by the way, the answer you might get back might be like a false negative, which is it's like people just can't envision the thing until it's put in front of them. And so they don't know they want it. Or, you know, the answer is going to be false positives, which is, oh, yeah, that sounds great, right? Because people are just like mouthing off and they don't actually have to like spend money on something. Um, and so they're, you know, they're, they're kind of actual, uh, you know, actions aren't, aren't predictive from what they say. So. So like, it's just, it's, you know, for, for, for the markets that don't exist yet, like it, it, it you know, those are the ones where it's, it, it is an actual leap, 
like, I mean, look, you, you do all the work you can, you do prototypes and you do like lots of, you know, trials and you, you, know, you mock-ups and, you know, there's lots of stories, you know, one of the great stories on that front is um, Jeff Hawkins, who basically essentially invented the modern smartphone in, in a way sort of pre the iPhone in the form of the Palm Pilot. Um, you know, he famously carved out of wood, like a prototype for what the form factor of a smartphone would be. Um, and then like carried it around his pocket for like six months and like, you know, would pull it out, like when he was like out to dinner or whatever, to see if it was like a convenient thing. Um, and so, you know, like you, you do as much as you can do customer interviews and all that stuff, but like, you don't fundamentally, you'll never really know. Uh, I don't think until the thing actually makes contact with the customer. Yeah, uh, that's definitely right. Which is kind of the exciting thing about it, you know, and then, and then you have to know, uh, when to give up if it's not working, which is also a, a challenge. Yep. You know, generally when, you know, if you're a real entrepreneur, it's when you completely run out of cash. <laughs> exactly. Or or mm -hmm. when everybody quits and not even necessarily yeah. done. Yep. Yeah, no, definitely. Okay. All right. Let's see. Uh, we have about 35 minutes to go. Um, so let's do one industry specific thing. So I love this question. So Joe, uh, Joe Faleo asks, what specifically is blocking nuclear power plants from being built? This is, of course, a very topical question this week. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. After what what happened in Texas last week, um, when uh, people, you know a lot of people were like very severely, uh, you know, very severely put under threat um, from uh, from from a lack of power in Texas during a very uh, cold period. Um, what do you think of third gen and fourth gen reactors? Um, what does the energy industry look like in ten years? So, so I'll I'll, I'll try and then yeah. and then see what, see what you think of my answer. So, mm -hmm. um, so. So once upon a time, uh, nuclear power was the bell of the ball. Um, and this was like in the 1950s and probably in the early 1960s. Um, and, you know, so sort of the atomic age, it was even called at the time the physicists were the rock stars. Mm -hmm. Einstein was famous and all these guys. Um, and it was basically, um, you know, sort of there was sort of obviously nuclear weapons, which, you know, at least were given, you know, some credit for ending World War II. Um, at the time. And then, you know, there was also the rise of nuclear power, the prospect of basically unlimited, unlimited power from the atom, which was very exciting. Um, and then basically what happened, well, actually a couple of things happened. So one is, you know, there, there were some, there were some issues, there were some problems. And I think it was, uh, what was the Three Mile Island? Um, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. There some famous problems. There's some famous problems. So Three Mile, Three Mile Island was a, an American uh, civilian reactor uh, that, that had, a, had a big, had a big issue. Um, and then Chernobyl was a very scarring event in the 80s, and that was a military reactor um, that uh, that uh, that went critical. Um, and so one is like literally you had this, it almost felt like the ick factor, um, where it was like, it was basically like the mental image of something glowing radioactive green went from something that was like, oh, wow, that's really cool to like, oh, my God, that's horrible, like kind of in, 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 in just a couple of steps. And so there was, there was sort of this very kind of big like emotional swing um, against nuclear power. And then, and I'll come back to that in a second, um, why I say that was primarily an emotional swing. Um, and then um, the other thing that happened was basically a split, I don't know if it was a split or it had to do with sort of the formation of what we now consider the modern environmental movement. But basically over the last basically 40 years, uh, basically since the 1970s, there's been this split in the environmental movement, you know, for people who care about the environment and, you know, carbon, carbon emissions and global warming and, and all these things. Um, there was a split basically between people who said, look, like we have a like we have a we have a civilization that needs power and like quality of life, like both in the in, in our country and globally is 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 in large part a function of, of access to power, you know, for everything from, you know, indoor lighting and heat all the way through to like, you know, incubators for, you know, you know, kids in the NICU and so forth. 
Um, and so we need to generate like lots of power. And basically the actual clean way to generate lots of power is actually nuclear. Um, and there, there are environmentalists who, 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 who take that case. I'll, I'll also come back to that. Um, and then of course there was the other part of the environmental movement, which was basically like, no, like not only is like nuclear power bad, but like the whole idea of economic growth is something that we should question. And in fact, we should probably shoot for degrowth, right. And we should probably be trying to reduce the amount of power. And in fact, we should probably be trying to reduce population size. We should be trying to you know, reduce growth rate and we should be trying to reduce the kind of the footprint of humanity on the planet. Um, and basically what happened sort of after the 1970s is basically that second category of environmentalists basically won by like what, you know. 10,000 to one or like 100,000 to one or like a million to one. Um, and so nuclear kind of went like completely out of fashion, um, you know, kind of uh, kind of comprehensively both in the culture and, and in, um, you know, kind of in the environmental movement. Um, the reason I go through all that is there, there are actually now environmentalists and actually the, the one that I always pay the most attention to is Stuart Brand uh, because Stuart was one of the actual original uh, environmentalists in the 60s and has been active in the movement for 50 years and is still active today. Um, and also just happens to be like one of the smartest people on the planet, as well as, as well as honestly, one of the, one of the nicest um, and most generous. And Stuart actually, I think this entire time has actually kept the faith. And so you got you know, basically a guy with like impeccable environmental credentials. You know, he like founded the whole Earth Catalog and like did, did all these things over, 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 over the years. Um, and he's actually like, I think this is a fair representation. Like he's 100 percent pro nuclear power. Um, and in fact, he wrote a his most recent book on this topic is called Whole Earth Discipline. Um, and this, this is one of the topics. And, and he basically makes that, that, that first environmentalist case that I mentioned. And then what these, you know, what sort of modern nuclear power advocates will point out is something actually quite interesting, which is, yes, there were these highly publicized disasters at places like Three Mile Island and at uh, Chernobyl and so forth. But if you see, it's on Wikipedia, you can look it up Wikipedia. If you add up the total number of deaths attributable to uh, civilian nuclear issues, um, including through Mile Island and Fukushima and basically every other civilian reactor that's had a problem, like the actual uh, magnitude of deaths um, uh, associated with those issues has been shockingly small. Um, and and to, the, to the point of like, I, I, people will be surprised when they see how small it was. And in fact, the, the accidents actually tend to be actual, uh, actually construction accidents more than uh, nuclear power accidents. Um, it, it just like, it just turns out like, it's just not, it, it, it's not anywhere near the kind of issue just from a, from a, from a health and safety, uh, uh, sort of impact that people think. And then the other is like, you have to index it against the alternatives. Um, and so like one thing is like, as we saw in Texas last week, like number one, lack of power is a bad idea, right. Or, or, you know, use of wind power in a place where, you know, for example, the windmills might literally freeze, which was what happened in Texas. Um, or the traditional way that people get power in the rest of the world, and the traditional way that people get power in the rest of the world is they burn um, wood in their homes. Um, and burning wood in one's home is not anything something people have done in the U.S. for a long time, but it's still very common around the world. Um, <laughs> they did that in your home for a while. They, we, yes, yeah, that is true. <laughs> Um, uh, burning wood in the home is actually extraordinarily dangerous um, and actually globally uh, generates actually a lot of preventable deaths every year. Um, and so, you know, people need to do something to generate, you know, heat and, and cook food and so forth. And, and like, if they have to do that, they'll do that. And it's like, it's really bad. Uh, now, you know, we don't see that, right. Cause like, we don't do that. Um, and you know, you never see you know, a picture of somebody doing that in the newspaper. You just see a picture of a big scary nuclear reactor. Um, and so this is one of those kind of seen versus unseen things. And so Stewart and other kind of pro-nuclear envi environmentalists make the argument of like, basically it's time to reconsider this. It's time to relook at this. Like, you know, we're all trying with like solar and wind, but like the problem with solar is like the sun's not always out. The problem with wind is like the wind isn't always blowing and we like still don't have like effective power storage. 
right at, 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 at large scale. And so like we actually can't, you know, Germany has found this for the last you know decade or so, which is we actually can't cut, cut over to full renewables because we won't have 24 seven power with full renewables, which means we need some other form of power. And if like we don't build nukes, that probably means we're still going to have coal fired plants. And that's, you know, also a really bad idea. Um, and so I, I think it's time. Like, I, I think it's like, I think if you're, I think if you're not an environmentalist, it's definitely time to dig into nukes. And then even if you are an environmentalist, I think it's time to really take seriously what Stuart says, uh, and really think hard about this. Yeah. And now I, I think that's right. I mean, the other thing, right. Almost all the fossil fuels have a pretty high death rate. I mean, just yeah. things that nobody even talks about, like people dying on oil rigs is like a very, very it's like one of the most dangerous jobs in the world, I think, work on that. And then um, I, I also think like you probably understated how uh, devastating it got in the popular culture against nuclear. So, I mean, when we were kids, Mark, you remember they would train us on half-life of the nuclear things and like what it meant and it never goes away and it's going to contaminate the environment forever and, and these kinds of things. And I think that, you know, that, that, talk track and that education system was never updated for the advances in technology over the kind of subsequent 50 years. Um, And so, and there's been no effort. So I think, you know, when you think about the modern nuclear movement, um, it's got just a lot of cultural work to do. Homer Simpson works at the, right, the nuclear plant and he glows in the dark. Like that stuff is, that's the last reference. There is no positive reference on nuclear power anywhere in popular culture. So I think that for it to succeed, um, there has to be a much kind of broader, more concentrated effort to educate people. And actually on that topic, let me actually recommend a podcast series. Um, So a friend of ours, uh, Brett Kugelmass, has a podcast series called Titans of Nuclear. And the website is uh, titansofnuclear.com. Um, and Brad is a uh, is an engineer, uh, you know, with a sort of top, uh, you know, top engineering credentials. And he has uh, actually traveled all around the world for the last few years. And he is actually up to 294 episodes. Um, he has basically interviewed essentially, basically, essentially every expert on nuclear power in the world, um, or he's working his way through them. Um, and so if anybody really wants to dig into this topic, like he, he has, he has interviews on basically every conceivable aspect of nuclear power. So I highly recommend, and that should be um, much better known. Uh, let me see. Okay. Let's see. Okay. Fun one. And Ben, you can, you can start with this one. Um, so, uh, Daryl S J, uh, asks, <laughs> this is great. Should technology expertise be a requirement to be a United States Senator? <laughs> we would not okay. have a Senator that could not read a law, but we have senators that do not understand technology. Benjamin. Yeah, no, so this is really interesting. It kind of gets into, you know, something we were talking about last uh, last week, which is, I, I think, you know, we've really, uh, for whatever reason, I think people have not gotten their heads around, like, what the biggest uh, kind of invention of the last hundred years was, which are the biggest scientific breakthrough, which was really the work of Alan Turing and Claude Shannon and on information technology and how we've been able to remodel like the entire world um, based on a brand new technology. So places where we would have, you know, modeled things in biology with chemistry or where we would have modeled things uh, in kind of Newtonian physics or whatever, where we can now build an information model that's more flexible. We can 
apply better tools, it's more accurate, it's, and we can do more things. And so, you know, we in technology, of course, take this for granted, and and uh, we we expect these kinds of things to happen. Um, but most people in the world who are outside of the world of technology, like there is no broad-based education. And in fact, like in most universities, it's not required that you understand the kind of basics of information technology or anything like that. It's, you know, there's still elective courses and so forth. So it's not like in the culture yet, which is really interesting because if you look at, um, you know, if you could imagine like, okay, Newton, um, you know, comes out with uh, Principia Mathematica and like nobody pays any attention to it. Um, and and it's not taught in schools and, and it's never done. And like people run the country and they're like, you know, and we're in like 1960 and they're like, hey, you know, I, I'm still a horse and buggy guy. I'm not using that automobile. Like, what are you talking about? Like mall, you can't get to the mall in a horse and buggy or, you know, like it's that big a disconnect. And we're now... 80 years after kind of the invention. And um, I, I would say, yeah, most of the, or many of the people in government have no understanding of technology or no understanding of what it means. And, uh, and you know, like we, I think we're seeing this at kind of, okay, just the urgency around how we need to think about um, the regulation of the kind of uh, vaccine boosters coming out there, there there's a real panic among this the kind of scientific community that like okay look are you know the people in the government don't understand how this vaccine works therefore they don't understand what's required for the fda to approve the booster which means therefore like this COVID thing could go on for a much longer time than is necessary simply because the people making the laws don't actually understand what the hell is going on and so i am kind of coming to the conclusion that it's uh, becoming a bigger and bigger problem. But look, we don't have any, re I don't know that we have a great requirement that you have to know the law either, <laughs> by the way. I don't know. Is there, there, there isn't, there, there isn't. Is, is there any test to, to like know the law to be a senator? I don't think so. The, the bad news is no. The, the, yeah. the good news, as it were, is that they're mostly lawyers. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, but not um, all. Not all, not all. Um, so I would add another, I agree with all that. And then I did another lens on it, which is uh, Doug, Douglas, Douglas Adams. I just pulled up this uh, quote, Douglas Adams, who wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, once said the following. He said, I've come up with a set of rules that describe our reactions to technologies in three parts. Part one, anything that is in the world when you're born is normal and ordinary. And it's just a natural part of the way the world works. Um, part two, anything that's invented between when you're 15 and 35 is new and exciting and revolutionary, and you can probably get a career in it. Um, and part three, anything invented after you're 35 is against the natural order of things. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yes. And, you know, pick, pick your cutoffs for that. But I think that's probably a pretty, pretty good starting point. And so the, 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 the other thing that the other way I would answer the question is like, I think we have to I think we have to increasingly ask the, ask the age question. Um, and you know, look, I'm like, I'm, <laughs> well, that's scary given the age of <laughs> our government. That exactly right. Yeah. So look, like I am a hundred percent in favor of like people working into their, you know, fully advanced years. I, I plan to myself. I'm a hundred percent like excited when there's like a, you know, a public servant who's like selflessly devoted themselves, you know, to, to, to policy or whatever for 50 years. And, 
so forth and so on. But like when you look at our government broadly, like the, the word that has to be applied is gerontocracy. Um, and our, our friend Eric Weinstein it says it makes sort of a very specific observation, which is basically the baby boomers are not relinquishing control. Um, and now you're getting into this zone where, you know, you have certain senior political figures that are literally like running for reelection, uh, into reelected seats, you know, into their, into their nineties. Um, and yeah. it's just like, yeah, look, it's just like, it's a challenge to keep up with this stuff. You know, he, Douglas Edison is 35. Like it's a challenge to keep up with this stuff when you're 40, much less 45, much less 50, much less 80, much, much less 90. Like at some point, like the world does change, um, and the issues change. Um, and if you didn't grow up with any of the, you know, kind of technologies that matter, any of the new things that are happening, like, I, I do think there is like a, there is like a fundamental question. Like, even if you were well-educated at one point, like how likely is it that you're going to like grasp all this stuff? And then I, I bring it up as a very specific baby boomer thing, because basically what's happening, and by the way, you can kind of track this across fields. This isn't just politics. It's also true, for example, of university presidents, um, it's true of principal investigators who get National Science Foundation grants. It's true of actually CEOs in a lot of cases. Um, is basically, it's like the baby boomers are basically not retiring. Um, and and again, like maybe you can maybe you can admire them for it, but like they're not retiring. Um, and then basically, what's happening is across sort of a very broad swath of institutional leadership in our country, including the government, you know, seen most notably like in the Senate and in the, in the Supreme Court over time, um, is basically like it, it looks like Gen X is going to get basically skipped. Right. So like it's not clear, for example, that there will ever be like Gen X university presidents, just as one example. Like we may just simply get skipped. And the reason is the boomers may just simply hold on until the millennials. Right. Until until literally when the millennials arrive. Right. And so leadership in this country might go straight from the boomers to the millennials. Um, Now, you know, if you have a dim view of Gen X, uh, which includes Ben and me, then, you know, fair enough. But like (laughs) uh, so many people do have a dim view of you and I. They, they they do so you know maybe maybe that's maybe that's valid but like it this is weird and I guess even more than saying it's weird it's it's a historical like it's it's yeah. not how things used to work um, and so we have we have gone from one mode of operation to another mode of operation in terms of expecting kind of when leadership turns over and you know honestly like I think with potentially big consequences um, and I and I think the sort of uh, technology I would say you know sort of fluidity and awareness and and uh, and fluency with technology you know is certainly one of those consequences so. Well, how, how do you contrast that, though, against kind of both, uh, you know, wisdom that comes with age and um, the Lindy effect of trusting a politician that you've at least seen for a while and mm-hmm. know isn't completely bananas? Yeah, exactly. No, look, th- those are very good. I mean, you know, and this is obviously that, you know, the claim for anybody who's, you know, anybody who's 80 who's running for office, I guarantee they're running on their experience, right? Um, Um, so yeah, no, look that, you know, that's the counter argument. Look, look, the other side of it is just like the the periods of incumbency, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, if somebody's running for, you know, most, most senators that are running for re-election when they're 80, like if you look at their backgrounds, they've been in government for like 45 years, right. Or, or longer. Right. And, you know, for like senators, for example, it's, you know, they, they were in, you know, they're typically in the house for some period of time, often, you know, 10 or 20 years. And then they've been in the Senate for like 30 or 40 years. And so, you know, the, the, the other is just like simply duration, which is like, okay, like, you know, at some point, um, you know, should there be people with different backgrounds? You know, should there be people with, uh, let's say, at some point, mm-hmm. should there be people with different life experiences? Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and by the way, not just in tech, and you know, in, in other areas. I, you know, healthcare is an obvious one. Like, you know, they're just like, for example, you know, the, the, the government determines, you know, the, these, these same folks determine, you know, our, our sort of national healthcare policy. They control a sixth of the economy and, our, and all of our health outcomes through, through the legislation they pass. Um, and the role of the government in healthcare, and like you know, the number of doctors in the Senate and the House is you know vanishingly small. Um, you know, so that's another example. 
Um, military vets are on the rise, which is, I think, probably a good thing, um, just because the military is so important, uh, such a big, important part of the government. But um, there, I, there aren't that many doctors. Yeah, um, and, you know, medicine, medicine now, also, that would help. Yeah. 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 Oh, also, medicine keeps getting more complex. Right. So. Well, yeah. And changing. I mean, you know, like I say, you know, we've gone to a, a new, you know, or a more advanced um, model of the body. And so you can apply computer science techniques to biology now in a way that you absolutely could not, um, yep. you know, certainly a decade ago. And um that changes things a lot. So if you're if you're <laughs> if you're outdated by ten years, that that is very outdated. That's like being outdated by a hundred years ten years ago. Yep. Um, so we'll uh, wrap. We have three more questions. We'll go to about eight thirty. Um, so Josh Joshua Sushan asks, how has your definition of success changed over the years? Um, not just in the CEOs and startups that you work with, but also with your firm as a whole. So Ben, definition of success and how is it changing? Yeah, so, uh, and some of this is, uh, I'll, I'll just say, you know, let me put myself in the old category because um, I have changed my definition of success quite a bit. And like some of it is is, is personal and some of it is just kind of life learned. But, um, you know, I used to be very focused on, okay, like what is the, uh, you know, what's the outcome? What's the you know, how big did this get? How much money did it make? You know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, increasingly my definition has changed to expand to, you know, what was the quality of the time spent on that thing? Uh, and I think about that and, and I find that um, if you have success on that, i.e. like if, for example, Andreessen Horowitz is, a good place to work where people like spending time at work and it enhances their life and they learn. And then that they transfer that into the companies that we work with. And those, and those companies are better off from having spent time with us. Um, then one, that's a reward within itself. And then two, that usually leads to all the other kinds of successes. Um, and it's a much more tangible thing because it's something that I can work on every day, every minute, um, because it's everything that we do every day. It's how we treat each other. It's how we kind of respond in a crisis. It's how we like show up to a meeting. It's how we listen. It's how everything we do, as opposed to if you go like, okay, you know, can we get $50 billion under management or can we, you know, have the highest returns of any VC or something like, what do I do about that today? Um, and you know, the, the question gets like really abstract, really fast. So, uh, that's, that's, I would say the core way that I've changed how I think about things. Yeah. yeah and then I'd give, you know, I think I'd give actually an answer, which I think might actually be the same answer, um, mm -hmm. which is basically, um, sort of, yeah, I would say sort of how, <laughs> how well the people we work with are able to do. Um, and mm -hmm. not just while we're working with them, but also after. Um, yeah, that's a great, great way to think about it. Yeah, and so, and I think that th this, I think is, you know, <laughs> on the age topic, I think this is an age thing. Um, this is probably a little bit of a, a sort of legacy thing, um, which is basically like, okay, like great, you know, the products are great, they had a great impact on the world, like, you know, so forth, the companies made money, so forth, but it's like, okay, these people that I had a chance to work with, right? And these people that I could like basically help in a crisis, 
right? Or these people who I could help teach something to, or these people who I could like, you know, be there when they needed me. Um, you know, these people were able to do these things. And then these people, you know, Silicon Valley is this just like incredible kind of, you know, sort of, <laughs> sort of as a sort of incredible family tree that just keeps like branching off in all kinds of, you know, amazing new directions. Um, and so, you know, the people you're working with today are going to end up, you know, starting companies and building companies and joining companies and doing other things in their lives, you know, for, for years and years and years to come. Right. And they're, they're just going to like cover just an incredible amount of ground. Um, and so to, to be able to kind of, you know, to be able to ha basically have the attitude and be able to take pleasure in the fact that people were then able to kind of succeed in life and succeed at work, um, you know, for kind of years to come. Like, I, I think that that gets to be quite, quite gratifying. And then, and then look, you know, the other thing is, it isn't just about the, the, the employees themselves, it's also about their families, right? And it's also about their, their communities. Um, yeah. And so their, their ability to then have a positive impact on the people around them. You know, it's like, you know, this is something you see, like when, when people are like financially successful in Silicon Valley, all of a sudden they're able to provide for their families in a, in a totally new way. Um, you know, they're able to, you know, donate philanthropically in the community. And you, like you, and you, you see that happening up close. Um, and I, I'd say that that's an in, increasingly important kind of component of, of my satisfaction. Yeah, no, and I, I think that's right. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, um, that's what, you know, like, that's what I remember about Netscape. That's what I remember about Opsware. You, you know, it's not, <laughs> you know, I, I remember the last day when we sold Opsware to HP and I remember when we sold uh, Netscape to AOL, but like the time, the time spent and like the things that we did right um, are amazing. And then the things that we did wrong are still painful now. So I, I do think that's what's important. Yep. Okay, good. Penultimate question. Um, Megs asks, what lessons from your partnership have you taken into your marriages? And conversely, <laughs> what lessons from your marriages have you taken into your partnership? <laughs> that's kind of a funny question because <laughs> anyway. That's a, fan, uh, that's a fantastic yeah. question. Uh, I, I would say your your wife is much better looking than me and my wife is much better looking than you. So it's a hard, hard thing for me to compare. But both of those things, like, both of those statements are correct. I guess my biggest thing that I've kind of learned from both that, that have enhanced each other is, and it's kind of an out of fashion thing, I would say, um, because of the way the world's gone, is um, the, the value of, of commitment uh, and really like commitment to something bigger than yourself and commitment to each other and commitment to being there. Because if you have like a real commitment, um, you know, with, without that, you never get to anything honest. You never can get to the truth because you're always have to watch what you say because you could basically destroy the partnership at any minute. You could, you know, like things could go astray and this and that and the other. And, you know, the value of being committed to each other and like what you get out of that is so much bigger than the freedom of being uncommitted. And, you know, like I watch people who are uncommitted in their business life or in their marriage or in their relationships. And, you know, they think they're getting this optionality. Um, and the optionality is so weak compared to what I get from, you know, these commit these real commitments um, that you know it's sad to me to see it. I'm very happy for myself, you know, because we're able to accomplish things that we could never like. I mean, you know, and I know that 
even like what we've accomplished at the firm, like there's no way I could have done it without you. And like, I don't think that you feel like you could have done it without me. Like, and the only way we're able to do it together is with a level of commitment that you just don't see um, in like in businesses or marriages that often anymore. And I think that's a real tragedy. Yeah, right. It's like, uh, yeah, it's a it's sort of this cultural question of sort of rights versus responsibilities. Um, yeah. And yeah, the last 50 years or so, the culture has steered very hard in the direction of rights. Um, and, and you know, in, in, in many ways, I'm sure legitimately so. But, um, you know, if it rights over responsibilities, it's not necessarily a, a great trade off. Um, so I, I will volunteer something. And Ben, you can tell me if I'm actually living up to this or if I'm just um, <laughs> aspirationally. Um, so a friend of mine who's a, a clinical psychologist uh, said, said something really profound, I thought, about uh, about marriage. Um, he said two things, actually. He said, number one, he's like, look, he's like, the problem with like having a fight in your marriage, uh, mm-hmm. with you, like a, a fight with your spouse is like, if you win, you lose, <laughs> right? <laughs> he's like, look, like every fight you have with your spouse that you win, like your spouse is just going to be like that son of a bitch, right? Like <laughs> resentment, yeah. I mean, basically says, this is what causes marriages to collapse. So basically resentment builds up. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. uh, and, and a lot of it comes from this dynamic. And so Whenever he's like, you know, whenever he has has like a patient or whatever who's like in some big fight with their spouse, like, you know, what on earth are you doing? Like, you know, yeah. how, how how do you think this is going to end well? And then his his advice for his advice for resolving fights, I think, is quite clever. And he, he again, he also says he applies this in his life. Um, I'm curious to see what his wife says, but um, he says, look, when you get in like a fight with your spouse, like, you know, the the thing about getting into a fight, the thing about getting into like the kind of emotional conflict between between spouses or partners where people get like hurt feelings and angry and so forth. He says, it's like each person ends up with this just like, you know, worldview of like, I'm in the right and the other person's in the wrong, right? Like, yeah. you know, I, yeah, I've been your, wrong yeah. and it's the mm-hmm. other person's fault, right? And that's where you, you yeah. get your back up and, and that's, that's, that's when things can, can get really hairy. And so he says, the thing to do, <laughs> the thing to do is remove yourself um, from the room politely, um, you know, go to your bedroom or your study or your den or your basement and like sit in the dark. And think to yourself, you know, you know, yes, I have been horribly wronged and it is my spouse's fault and I can't believe how terrible she is. Um, but then think to yourself, is there maybe one little tiny thing that maybe I did that maybe made the situation a little <laughs> bit worse? <laughs> and it can be like a tiny little thing. It can be, you know, the wrong choice of word. It can be, you know, the dirty look or the eye roll or like whatever was like the little thing. Right. And you're like, and, and he's like, look, 100% of the time, the answer is yes. Like there was something like that. And then he says, basically, you figure out like what that thing was or what the first of those things was. And you go right back into the room and you apologize for that. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Take so, responsibility. And, you know, yeah, exactly. Back to your thing. Yeah. You know, I'm responsible for this fight. Exactly. And then, you know, look, and he basically says from there, like, if a, if a marriage is healthy, then at least it's sort of then, you know, then the other, then the other person now has an opening to be able to apologize without feeling like they're, you know, letting themselves down, you know, and then you can kind of, re, you, you can kind of recover, you know, re, rebuild the emotional core of the relationship. So, well, and that's a really great insight because it, look, com- commitment, um, like feels like a one-way street in the beginning. Um, but what it really is, it's, you know, you're, you're applying leadership. You're saying, look, I'm going to take responsibility for my end of everything that goes wrong here. And then you may do that in isolation for a while, but you know, it's such the right way to live that, that, you know, people adapt to that style. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, and as they know, say, like, what, you are the sum total of the, or you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. 
Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. 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 No, and, so it, and you were having that effect on the people around you. So. Um, yeah. Okay. Good. So, uh, final uh, final question. So, uh, Bush, uh, Bushra Faruqi asks, um, "What are some good science fiction novels, or, or I would broaden it out to say other novels, or even like you know TV shows or movies um, or other nonfiction books or whatever?" But let's you know start, start um, to read to forecast to see a possible future uh, from the current state of the world. Yeah. No. That's. Um... I have. I have, yeah, I have why, why don't you go? Because yeah. yeah. now that you broaden it, that's got me thinking about a couple other things that are interesting. Yeah, sure. So I'll start with uh, I'll start with three novels, three science fiction novels, yeah. and so I'll just I'll I'll say right up front, I'm a sucker for I'm a sucker for cyberpunk. So this this is these mm -hmm. are sort of all in that category, but I think they're all they're all great, and they've all had a big impact on me. So um, one is a a book that I actually can't believe is not a cult classic. It really deserves to be a cult classic. Um, it's a novel called This Is Not a Game. Um, mm -hmm. and it was written years, years back by this uh, author named Walter John Williams. Um, and it is basically, he, he spins forward basically this concept of the augmented reality game. Um, mm -hmm. and actually this is like becoming actually like quite relevant, um, in our world, um, because there, I, I, I won't name names, but th there are a number of very kind of, um, there are a number of sort of very energized, um, uh, so, so let's say political or social movements afoot in the country, um, that have elements, um, and it, not that they're games, but they have structural elements uh, of an ARG. And specifically what I mean by that is like, there are these very interesting kind of mergings of like online movements and offline movements, mm -hmm. right? Where like the things that happen online drive activity that happens in the street, say, and then activity that happens in the street feeds back right back to online. Um, yeah. or even, you know, going back, it's like the Arab Spring, you know, would, would, you know, sort of what happened like in, in, in Egypt, uh, you know, would, would have been a good example of this also. So, so it's this kind of convergence of kind of online and offline organizing and activating people and activating specifically activating crowds, like activating large mm -hmm. groups of people. Um, and so it's a uh, novel basically about a uh, actually designer of these games who basically gets embroiled in a significant real world uh, event and then pulls out her skill set of basically orchestrating these games to try to solve the problem. Um, and so it, yeah. it, it changes your view, or at least in my case, changed my view on basically what the form of political action of the future will look like. Um, second one is a, a novel, actually related novel called Rainbows End, uh, written by Werner Vinge, um, who's one of the great, histor uh, kind of great, uh, science fiction novelists of, of the last century. Um, uh, so it's, it's a book actually, it, it, it spins out sort of the future of augmented reality. Um, mm -hmm. and so it, it spins out this kind of future of, okay, what, what happens when we all have glasses or contact lenses that basically make the world look and feel and sound, you know, like however we want it to look and feel and sound. Um, and you know, what happens when we can basically choose, choose our own reality, right? Not, not, you know, we can choose our own reality today in terms of like what we, you know, who we listen to and what we believe, but like tomorrow we can change our whole reality in terms of literally how like everything looks. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, right. Yeah. Yeah. Including like, you know, where we are, right? Again, you know, can change arbitrarily because we can, you know, we can basically, you know, teleport wherever we want because we'll have, you know, kind of full televisual, you know, ability to kind of jump all around the planet and so forth. Um, and so he he spins forward kind of what that world's going to look like, uh, which is really good. And then the third one is a novel I actually read when I was a kid, which I still love and I still is still ahead of its time. It's called Dream Park. And it's written by the hmm. famous author uh, Larry Niven. Um, and it, this is one where, again, it's, it's just like, it's almost impossible to believe this hasn't been a, a big budget movie. Um, but it's basically about, uh, it's basically about the construction of these kind of mixed reality environments. Um, and so it, it's a little like Jurassic Park. It doesn't have, it doesn't have dinosaurs per se, but it's a little bit of like, okay, there's, or like Westworld maybe, 
there's like a theme yeah. park and then everybody's basically kitted out with these basically with, with augmented reality devices. And then they're sort of in this blended environment, uh, in this sort of very rich yeah. world that gets constructed as a, as a combination of, of virtual and, and physical elements. And then it, the plot kind of built from there. Um, so anyway, I recommend all three of those. Yeah. Well, I, I have to say it is much much easier to kind of visualize a fully augmented or a virtual reality world now that we've been in COVID for a while because uh, yes. we're, we're basically living in the uh, sorry two-dimensional version of that. Yep. Um, but that that's great. So actually, so I want to go to, um, you know, in, in for, I want to kind of hope for a kind of very positive view of the future and kind of pick up on a book that you mentioned uh, last time that I've been reading, uh, which is um, the the weird book, the weirdest the weirdest people in the world, um, about the uh, differences between uh, oral and written culture, and and let me tell you to, uh, about another book that it relates to. So, it, it's one of the fascinating things about reading this book right now is that it becomes really clear. And and uh, just to recall, you know, if you come from oral culture. Um, your brain is actually different than if you're from written culture, which actually causes, you know, the, the place in your brain that processes the ability to kind of read and be literate, um, it kind of replaces like facial recognition and things like that, uh, which are um, very valuable uh, if you're kind of primarily social or kind of a relationship person and these kinds of things. Um, and the misunderstandings between those two cultures, which of course, you know, we have both of, uh, you know, in this country and plenty have been kind of misinterpreted. Uh, I think a lot in terms, you know, particularly recently um, and, you know, things that could be attributed, like I think more accurately to the differences between written and oral culture to, you know, everything from like white supremacy to racism, to this, to that, the other, um, when they are like really true like significant and interesting cultural differences. And then that, which takes me back to this, uh, uh, another book that came out this year called Black Spartacus, uh, which is the kind of history of Toussaint Louverture and reviewing who is the leader of the Haitian slave revolution, which is the only kind of slave revolt in human history that uh, resulted in a, in a new state. Um, and when you look at, Toussaint from that lens, what you find is he was uh, kind of bilingual culturally in that he was born a slave, but he, of course, uh, became extremely literate uh, and went through his master's entire library and, and read on, you know, government and economics and all these things. And then, you know, the, the great story of the Haitian Revolution is, is him mastering both French colonial culture and you know most of European culture as well, which is kind of this uh, written culture as well as oral culture, uh, and kind of uh, combining his knowledge to, you know, at least temporarily unify the country in a very very interesting way, and it uh, makes me think that the answer uh, to a lot of our problems is is to reconcile the two cultures in some way, and I think that. Um, you know, hopefully we do that in a peaceful and really productive way where people can recognize each other, uh, which would be an incredibly bright future and not just kill each other, which is a little more of the path we're on. Good. 
Good. On that note, we have hit 8.30. We're right on time. And so <laughs> thank right, you, Benjamin, perfect. once again. <laughs> All right. What a note to end on. <laughs> yes, thank you, exactly. everybody, for coming. Those were some very interesting questions, and uh, yeah. we had a great time talking about them. Good. And we will see everybody uh, same time next week. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, everybody.